Welcome, rather much, to Red Button, Box 39's more later-than-earlier evening conversation show, coming live from Studio One at Colm Radio Towers on 106.6 FM, here on Colm Radio, and on the Not Here Mixcloud, or on Spotify and most major podcast platforms, which are also elsewhere, although effectively here, and more importantly, are the same. And tonight's lovely next nice conversation is with very good Phil Boast and even better Paula Larcher, who live in Sulawesi in Indonesia. And largely because of that, they wrote a true non-fiction serialised autobiography about themselves, called From Colchester to Sulawesi, which they wrote and serialised for Colm Radio, and which ended its epic Tuesday night run a couple of weeks ago, which ended with its last episode 26, about a fortnight ago. At Withenhoe Residence Expense, we flew Adrian Cohen back from Indonesia, where he lives, to the UK, here, in order to tell him to go to Indonesia and interview Phil and Paula, who were already in Indonesia because they live there. This resulted in the recording of the Room 305 tapes, because the interviews took place in the presidential suite, also known as Room 305, because of how many square metres the suite of room covers at the five-star Hyatt Regency Hotel in Yogyakarta. And another big thank you to Wivenhoe residents for paying for all that. So this evening, I am handing over to Adrian, who has been listening to the Room 305 tapes and has put together a lovely, quite nice, later evening conversation for Box 39 Red Button. Adrian, take it away. I'm out here on the breakfast terrace at the Hyatt Regency here in central Java. Now, whether you have listened to their 26-part story called From Colchester to Sulawesi, or whether you are yet to get round to listening to it, either way, there is much food for thought from talking to Phil Boast and his life partner Paula Larcher about their adventures. One could say that they wrote a new chapter in their lives by moving away from the UK, but that doesn't quite capture the enormity of it. The first part of their life was like a self-contained, successful novel. Then, they wrote themselves a sequel that was completely different, but every bit as successful, on their own terms which are pretty much the only terms the two of them know. It's a story about leaving Britain and starting afresh on the other side of the world.
Paula. Yes. You were thinking of leaving Britain. It was about year two thousand, about twenty years ago now, isn't that right? That's that's right. Yeah. Tell me, what was Britain like in two thousand? Well, from. Phil and my perspective, we were both working very hard. Um, we obviously had our own house, we had the dog, Phil had his own business, I was commuting to London and then from there all over the country, um, both I would say pretty settled and, and happy-ish with our existence. What was your business then, Phil? I was a landscape gardener and that has always been my, my profession. I did a, a three-year course at Merriswood Agricultural College uh, straight from school and then I went self-employed. I never had a job in my life, in fact, so I, didn't, I just went straight from college to to uh, pickup truck and a few tools. So, Paula, you, your life path there was slightly different. You were you moved into the the, the machinery of, of government and, and, and the bureaucracy by accident. Oh, all right. So when I graduated, uh, back in the eight, eighty, actually, um, I was looking for a job, as you do. And in those days, they would send you off to places to. When they thought a suitable vacancy came up, and I was actually recruited into what was then the DHSS, where I used to assess sickness benefit claims. Mm. And from then I moved on and moved up to London and did various, all sorts of things for the government. Going to leave this broke-down palace on my hands and my knees. I will roll, roll, roll Make myself a bed By the water side In my time, in my time I will roll, roll, roll In a bed, in a bed By the water side I will lay my head Listen to the river sing sweet songs To rock my soul Listen to the river sing sweet songs to rock my soul. River gonna take me, sing me sweet and sleepy. Sing me sweet and sleepy all the way back home. It's a foggone lullaby sung many years ago. Mama, mama, many worlds I've come since I first left home. Fare you well, fare you well. I love you more than words can tell. Listen to the river sing sweet songs to rock my soul. listening to Red Button on Colm Radio 106.6 FM. And this is the, the mental life that made you start thinking about wanting to live in the rainforest of Sulawesi. I, I would say it was probably deeper than that and went further back. Okay. That um, Phil and I obviously all our life have travelled and um, fell in love with the Far East a long time ago and there was always something within me, um, if I'm honest, that was, I feel very comfortable in that environment, in the Far Eastern environment. I okay. like the weather, I like the people, I like the culture. And I never felt that I was meant to live in a cold climate, to so you, be honest. You were bitten, you were bitten by the, the possibility of something else. What were some of your, what were some of your annual holidays, Phil, in, in the 1990s? It started with Borneo. I had an ambition to, to visit Borneo. I'd heard a lot about it on various nature programs, I suppose, and uh, I suggested Paula that we went there one, one year, which she agreed instantly. And uh, that's what started it all, really. Deep rainforests of Sabah and Sarawak was where we made our first inroads into the forests and in search of the orangutan and uh, hornbills, all the stuff that I'd read about. Actually, it started off PG Tips. Tea cards. <laughs> when I was about eight years old, there was a picture of a hornbill, right? And I thought, I would like to see one of these birds. This it's it, it captured in my mind even back then, back in the, in that day. For that far back, I was quite in, I was fascinated by this bird. I wanted to see one of these in the wild, and they have them in, in Borneo. And so it started a long time ago for me. Um, and so we did. We went to Borneo. We had 
absolutely fantastic trip. The first time we went was was just it, it, it got us both in the guts really, and we went. We took a canoe up through the rainforest to stay with the um, Iban people in the longhouses. Uh, we saw the hornbills, lots of lots of hornbills, orangutans, and spent some fantastic nights with these people. Um, very very primitive way of life, but absolutely fantastic people. Where you walk through the longhouse and there's the skulls hanging up from the ceiling, which you'd manage to bang your head on because they were headhunters traditionally. You did an um, onion for Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Indeed, I did, yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's the inspiration behind that. That's the true story. A um, little bit of uh, cross program plugging there. Just yeah. there. Just <laughs> so, so that was that was it for us, and that was the Far East. And that began our actual physical love affair with, with the tropics. The rain and the sunshine. And the of course, Borneo, it, we call it Kalimantan here. That, that's Indonesia. What other holidays did you have in the 90s, in, in, in the decade running up to your, your, your decision to escape? Well, I'd, I'd probably go back just prior to the Far Eastern adventures that we mm. embarked upon, which is quite significant, mm. is we, we did a very memorable trip to Africa. I have a thing about elephants. I adore elephants. And... Um, Part of the reason we fell in love with Africa was not only the smell of Africa, and um, but it was the wildlife, and for me particularly, the elephants. Which, which country are we talking about now? Uh, gosh, at that Kenya. point it was Kenya we'd been to. Yeah. So when we started going out to the Far East, one of the things which Phil's obviously mentioned, the orangutans and the hornbills, mm. but I was always on the lookout for the pygmy elephants pygmy. of Borneo, um, which eventually... We found. Several trips it later. took us a lot of many trips. <laughs> well, they, many are, trips. they are rather small, difficult yeah. to find. Eh? I mean, they don't call them pygmy for nothing. Eh? And the jungle is very dense. And, uh, <laughs> the best we ever did was we found droppings once or twice, didn't we? Yes, and we they, did. They, 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 the local people that, that told us that elephants had passed this way took two or three weeks ago or something like that. We never found them. And any, anything that makes you follow droppings back in Britain just doesn't have the same <laughs> exotic <laughs> flavour, does really, it? No, not really. No. no. <laughs> so, so. I, uh, pygmy elephants and the droppings, the hornbill and the PG tits, yeah. monkeys. Yeah. Uh, I think anybody back in Wivenhoe and Colchester could think, ah, oh, wow. There's an ancient bridge that lives in me as old as rain. As old as dreams I can't stop now I'm in too deep I lose myself In the wonder of things There's a faultless God He follows me around On devil's wings Ah, but I don't care What he thinks of me Not when I lose myself In the wonder of things Yvonne Peeney is my sister, and she played the role of Paula in From Colchester to Sulawesi. I would get flown back to Wivenhoe each week to voice Phil's parts. Now, Yvonne was bought a ticket to Jogjakarta, just like me, to make this programme, but she decided to exchange it for a ticket to Jamaica instead. Here she is. I'm a bit ashamed to confess that I would have been one of those that couldn't have told you where Sulawesi was, couldn't have pointed it out on the map. And this, despite the fact that I have some pretty significant connections with Indonesia, 
My brother's lived there for the best part of 30 years, and when he was doing VSO over there, he travelled fairly widely, and we would follow his exploits from his letters home in the Atlas at home. And secondly, I got married there in 1991. But I got married on Bali, which is not only thousands of kilometres away from Sulawesi, but a very different island, even from its surrounding islands, for religious reasons. And it was in the days when weddings abroad were still in their infancy and largely confined to beach weddings in the Caribbean. But the odd company did further afield weddings, and we decided we'd rather have a village wedding than one on the beach. So we had a memorable, if not bizarre, wedding in August of 1991, which involved being serenaded by a gamelan band and the village dogs as we ceremonially processed up to the temple where we were married in a glorious Balinese language service and had a pig's head on a bed of rice for our wedding breakfast. I'm still not entirely sure that it's legal. I think we may be in the same territory as Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall, but I do now know where Sulawesi is. After all, I believe, bring me I've got nothing to lose except everyone's blues Bring me Whiskey and wine if you're going over the line Bring me I've been counting my blessings Counting the crows Cause the older I get, the faster it goes And I know Nobody knows So if you don't mind If you don't mind Next time Exactly how does that convert into wanting to live there, though? We just got up, fed up with going back, actually. I mean, I think we, we reached uh, deeper, looking into it in all deep sense, we had reached a point in life where we were comfortable, we were both doing all right in our jobs and our businesses, we had a big house, bigger than we needed to, to live in, and, you know, there comes a point in life where we think, well, is this going to be the rest of my life, or is it not? Do I try and have another life, uh, which is a completely uh, different to this, and... Uh, and of course and of course that film was very poignant in the radio program and I remember it was actually some of the things that you were saying or that Yvonne was saying on your behalf mm. Paula uh, about that feeling of every time you went back it got harder and harder to leave all this exotic beauty and, and the promise of living here behind how did you feel about that and how far back in your life does that go? I, I think that's exactly it I mean there was a memorable moment which I think is in the programme in Singapore sitting on Clark Key over a few beers and we were obviously going to fly home the next day having just, just come in through Singapore and we sat there and, and said well what are we doing why are we going back because all we're going to do is we're going to go back we'll resume the life you work you you earn more money just so that you can get on a plane in however many months time to fly back to the place you really want to be and i think that was the sort of start of it all mm. that we were saying well why don't we just think this through and do it but at that time i don't think either of us thought we would eventually up sticks and move over it was more can we make something that we could visit a lot that would be our little bit of the Far East as opposed to, well, let's just move lock, stock and barrel and go out there. Because the whole thing evolved. It, it wasn't a life plan that we started here to get to, you know, start at X and get to Y. It wasn't like that. It, it evolved. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that key moment, I would say, on Clark Key in Singapore drinking beer, both of us said we don't feel right about going back this time. Right, and this think, is it. And I think that the radio programme caught that moment very well.
tonight was something new And I know you felt it too When we fell into the passion of a kiss Around the world We've shared these roads together Every journey is grand When you're holding my hand Do friends fall in love like this? Blazes with an ardent desire. A touch that once was just a touch burns hotter than a five alarm fire. Oh, say of mine for all our days to follow. What was innocent before has become a grand amour. Two friends fell in love like this. Paulo, tell us a little bit more about how you, how did you get from that feeling that something has to change, which I think is almost a line from the, the show or something. How did you get from those moments the night before you flew home to the choice of Sulawesi? To talk us through that. Okay, when we were having that memorable drink, we had just spent about a month in Sulawesi, traveling around North, North Sulawesi. Um, and we'd gone there particularly to a place called Damoga Bone, which again, we were chasing wildlife and, and having a look at it. But during our travels, we stayed in a place in Minahasa, the Minahasa Highlands of North Sulawesi. Oh, yeah. And we met a very interesting Indonesian and got talking to her. And she was the one who actually put the seed, I suppose, of Sulawesi in our minds because she said that it was a fantastic country. Um, lovely place to live, but what it lacked was overseas investment. And of course, you know, like Sulawesi is not the same as Java and Bali and Sumatra. You're talking about even that within the context of Indonesia is a new, a new idea and a new frontier. Yeah, it's much more remote, underdeveloped um, than than Java um, and underpopulated. And at the time, we were staying in the Minahasa Highlands, and the Minahasa Highlands are lovely and cool. It's a volcanic region and freshwater lakes, and but at night the temperature drops down. So for this, these little Brits, it, were, it was very pleasant mm. um, to the point that we even got offered rugs, didn't we? If we were too cold in the evening, yeah. um, which for the tropics is lovely. And we thought, oh, this is, this, you know, this. It's not like but Borneo is very humid and very hot and much more difficult for okay. Brits yeah. um, to live in. And we thought, well, actually, so lazy. The climate there is rather nice, you know, and maybe this is where we should be looking. And, of course, this woman that we had met was saying, yes, you can buy land and, and how much it was sort of costing a square metre and all of this. And why didn't we think about buying some land? Just very quickly for the listeners, what yeah. was the business that you built in Sulawesi? And we'll get back to that later, but just so that they catch up on what, what we're we eventually about. built was was a, a tourist lodge on the coast for ostensibly for scuba divers, naturalists, but mostly scuba divers, and that was one of the big pulls for me as well. Actually, if I, I'm, I'm a scuba diver, and you've always been a scuba diver, or you, you started that because you came here? Uh, no, I don't. I'd, oh, I, I was that before I went to Sulawesi. Okay. In fact, I had to dive in the Cayman Islands, and. Um, Sulawesi has got some fantastic diving and so that was a big pull for me. Now what, what were the other business ideas that kind of were toyed with or were sloshing around that, that led up to that? Right. Yeah. Well we had, we had, um, we had ideas about possibly an elephant sanctuary somewhere. Um, there aren't any elephants in North Sulawesi. Well that, 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 that's going to be one of the drawbacks of that one. Ruled, ruled that one out in fact. Uh, and then we thought we might get into some sort of plantation. I mean Kalamantan. not Palm plantations, they're not very good, but growing something. Or We even thought about Plantation. a turtle, uh, turtle sanctuary. In fact, it was one of the ideas that came up with at one point, didn't we? We thought, well, let's try and save the world's turtle, shall we? Yeah. Uh, you know, this is all, <laughs> this was all talked over over uh, English wine and in, in, in our English home. Um, yeah, we even added some, some sound effects of wine being poured into one or two of the radio right. programs, yeah, as you yeah. will recall. Most listeners were paying close attention. Most of, our, most of our good ideas came at those sort of times, you know. Um, when we were over a bottle of red, over a bottle of red, bottle of red wine.
red button. Shooting the breeze. Out of all that, how did uh, Bohowo Lodge end up being the decision that you made, Paula? Well, having had this seed planted by this woman saying you could buy land here, and then obviously we're at Singapore talking about it, and we said, well, this is ridiculous. Why don't we just go back in three months and see what sort of land is available to buy? and take it from there. And that's exactly what we did. Was she like an estate agent? I don't, no, know, I don't no. know whether you would call them that, or a lawyer or something? No, no? she was a, an amazing woman who had spent most of her life in Switzerland, married to a, a Swiss guy um, who unfortunately died, and then she'd returned to her homeland and was actually just working, wasn't she? She was yeah. managing the hotel that we were staying in in the Minahasa Highlands mm-hmm. and just got talking to us. She was privileged in that sense, but she wasn't uh, part of the of the structure of the whole thing, in fact. But she triggered it, she and triggered she it. put well, that... She triggered the, the, sort of the specific thing. You had this longing, yeah. you had this yeah. desire to, to, to not have to keep going home, yeah. to work out some way to keep yourself over here, but she was the one that made you sort of think, we could buy land. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it's reasonable yeah. price um, and all the rest of it. So we did exactly that. We went back three months later. And we, we'd already asked um, the guy that had been, been our tour guide when we were touring the North Sulawesi if he could find pieces of land that were for sale. And we specifically asked him in the Minahasa Highlands, could he find land in the Minahasa Highlands? Did you go around looking at these pieces of land? Yes. So yeah. we, we went back three months later and give him his due, he'd found a good half a dozen pieces of land, hadn't he, for us to look at. So, yeah, uh, was that an exciting thing, looking at bits of land? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course, yeah, yeah sure. And, and because we told him to look in Minahasa, up in the mountains, um, that's where we went. And we spent a week touring around, looking at these different places. You know, land which is not for sale can become for sale very quickly, just by talking to the right people. I mean, people, you know, so that's, that, it's not like, a, you don't have like a real estate agents over there, it's just a piece of land. And yeah, and, and so we did, we spent a week uh, or so, did we not? And, and we just, none of it was working for us. You know, we, we did look at some very nice pieces of land up there, but it was just wasn't, wasn't right. These pieces of land you're looking at, how far were they away from stuff that you would sort of need, like, uh, you know, settlement and roads and things. Can you give us a few examples? Of, of well, the ma- there is a main town up in the highlands called Tomohon, which is where the centre of everything, isn't it, really? But the land we were looking at was, was yeah, a half an hour drive away. So mm. That sort of thing. Side wasn't of a volcano. Oh, beautiful. Surface beautiful roads? Locations. Well, we looked at one piece of absolutely beautiful land that was on the side of the volcano. Absolutely no road at all, no no infrastructure whatsoever. So, yeah, I mean, okay, you've got a town that's got a main road, but once you leave that town, you're on dirt tracks. Yeah, you get there best you can, on foot or whatever. And so we were looking at that. I mean, again, we hadn't really thought this through about whether or not there was water supplies, electricity supplies, roads. You just, we were still in this lovely romantic view. what you do when you got there? I mean, what would you do up in, living up in the mountains? There is nothing really to do. There's no business that you can run from there. So fortunately, probably for us, we, we changed our minds at some point during that trip. And we were staying in a beachside hotel. And we were looking out over the ocean one evening. We were. Over at cocktails, whatever. And we said, look, this is, something's wrong. And what's wrong is there's no ocean up in the mountains, right? And we want to live by the sea. Okay. Yeah, it's a little bit warmer, but you know, we really would have missed the sea had we not. It's, you know, it's an hour and a half, two hours drive to the mountains from where we were, and so that changed everything completely. Really, that that was that was another sort of part of the evolution of thinking. It was that well, okay, now we're going to live by the sea. What can we do? We could actually, what do they do in the sea? They scuba dive, so maybe we could think about setting up some sort of business. Uh, had to do with scuba diving because at the time uh, Bunaka National Park which is where all the diving gets done over there that's that whole area called, is it the Golden Triangle the, the Coral the coral Triangle yes, yes. Fa- famous yeah, famous yeah. for its reefs and things well, yes, where, where right. does that go it goes yeah. from up there down to Ambon is that right and, and down to it's got the Philippi- the Golden Triangle it's got well the Golden Triangle initiative includes the Philippines and yeah. Indonesia yeah so within that, there was a national park which had been set up by an English, no, American guy, some years previously. And at that point, it was very, um, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't well known in the in the diving fraternity really. But it was, it was the diving there was absolutely fantastic. And so that was what made us decide to relocate our thoughts, let's say, to the coast. And so we said to Ollie, 
Okay, forget the mountains, we want to live by the sea. So, uh, could who, who was on it? Oh, he, he was the guy that had been our tour guide and that we t- tasked to find the land for us. And so at the very short notice, when Phil and I made the decision, well, actually, we want to live by the sea, he had about two days left to find land before we were going to fly back to England, which that's when you were getting a bit disappointed and everything. And sure enough, he found her about another three pieces of land in very short notice along the coast from very close to where we were staying. And... On the last day, the very last piece of land that we looked at, and and as we drove into this little fishing village, he said, you won't like it. It's in a fishing village. You know, it's it's not isolated as such because it's actually in a little fishing village. But so you won't like it, but I'll show it to you anyway because oh, it's for sale. Isn't that got to be the way these, these stories work out like that, don't they? Phil and I... The last place you look. The last place we look, and we stepped on the land, both of us. You know, and he more or less said, well, the land stretches from that coconut tree down there, across to the coast, to there. And we both looked at each other and went, yeah, this is it. it." Are the trees in your street? Is the grass beneath your feet? Let our land the one Does the tap at your sink Give you water fit to drink Let our land the one Do our arms welcome our friends Are our passports valid The dreams we had Jerusalem For me, the most interesting part of the story was not in fact the most obvious problem, which is getting a lodge built in the middle of nowhere when you don't speak the language. That was task enough. Lots of setbacks, which Paula and Phil showed enormous grit, determination and flexibility to overcome, particularly as they didn't speak the language. It wasn't that. It was the story that underpins the whole series of how they became assimilated into this community. A community which, frankly, was not really used to foreigners much at all. And how Paula and Phil came to be accepted, not just as tourists perched on the edge of the community who were going to profit from a lodge which was stuck there in the middle of nowhere. That wasn't the idea at all. The idea was to embed themselves in the community and to be accepted as part of it. And the way they did that is first and foremost by having boundless enthusiasm for learning about the area that they were living in, both flora, fauna, society, customs, folklore, superstitions, you name it, Paula and Phil wanted to know about it. But also by being enormously humble and respectful and sensitive and taking things at a very cautious pace. And that really paid off because they forged immensely strong relations with the people in the village and were clearly trusted and loved by the villagers in a way in which is obvious that they came to love and trust the villagers too. And that's really at the heart of this story, not the physical building of the lodge.
the little fishes Bring the sharks Bring them from the brightness Bring them from the dark Bring them all in, bring them all in, bring them all in, bring them all in, bring them all in my heart Bring them all in, bring them all in, bring them all in, bring them all in, bring them all in my heart Bring them from the caverns Bring them from the heights Bring them from the shadows Stand them in the light Bring them all in, bring them all in, bring them all in, bring them all in, bring them all in my heart You were telling us about this decision and at that point you were thinking about a holiday home, you were thinking about a, a place to get away, a place that you could call home here but of course, it developed into so much more than that. So tell us more about that, how the whole thing escalated. Okay, so after the initial excitement of finding a lovely piece of land by the sea, which was covered in jungle, and the guys gave us some assurance they were clear, we went back to the UK, obviously, um, and were talking it over. Now, the little ideas that were forming in our mind at that stage were still very much along the lines of, yeah, holiday home, family, friends, everybody can come out, we can all have a great time, da 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 hmm. And then a very good friend of ours, Martin, who's an architect, we thought, well, let's go and talk to Martin and see Martin, um, who lived down in the New Forest. So off we trotted. Oh, he was mentioned. He was yeah. mentioned in from Colchester to Zulawes. Yeah. As an international architect. Uh, absolutely. So, with, said, with his plans in English, I remember. And, and the local people there were saying, oh, that's very interesting. I've never seen these. I've never seen any plans before. But we said, it's never seen any with English on them. <laughs> and, and Martin, bless him, he, he was fantastic. And he said, yeah, sure, I'll design something for you. Because we said, could you, you know, the sea's this way, the mountains are this way. Here's a couple of photographs, but... That's all we've got. And talking to him, the idea then developed that if you're going to build, why not build something a little bit bigger than we probably thought about, with rooms that you could rent out. And then it's suddenly the whole idea of this lodge came about. This is back in Britain. We're back in Britain. And you're sitting there drinking drinking wine wine. with your architect. And then it's escalating there. And, And so Martin did this lovely drawing proper architectural drawings for us which we then took back to Sulawesi and handed over which then had to go through the mayor's office uh, for clearance before we could start building and that's when they picked up that of course Martin had put everything in English on all of these drawings and they were like this is all in English Mm. and luckily our guys had enough sense to say ah Yes, but he's an international he's, architect, he's international. and so therefore he does it all in English, which they were perfectly satisfied with and happy, and the, the drawings got cleared, and we were then given permission to build. So, for a British person thinking, well, I'll buy a bit of land, and I'll make this building here, that's very straightforward. In Indonesia, you've got this whole thing where foreigners aren't allowed own land. Exactly. So what was that all about? We, well, we had to go through our friend Oni, who was at the time our friend. Uh, we had to put the whole thing in an Indonesian name. And yeah, we were friends at that point. It didn't, it didn't uh, turn out that way in the end, but basically at that point in the development of this extremely organic thing which was happening, we were friends and, and he said, sure, you can put it in my name. Why not? That's, that's okay. Did you feel any sense a risk at that moment about making that deal with that. With that There's person. always an element of risk, of course. Yes, I mean, we, and the, the 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 philosophy behind all this really is that we were not going to invest any more than we could afford to lose. Yeah, in the, in the worst case scenario, if the whole thing went pear shaped, then we would actually be able to go back to our old lives again and be disappointed. Uh, but we could actually continue with a sort of life. I mean, we've met too many people out here who have not done that, who have sold up everything and come out married in Indonesia or whatever, or found some way of um, 
fulfilling their dream and the dream turns into a nightmare when uh, the marriage breaks up or they run out of money or it doesn't work, something happens. Well, I've obviously lived here for as long as you have and when I first heard that you'd done a deal with somebody they were going to buy this land for you, I was thinking, well, I've got a lot of war stories here that, that didn't end up very well. I mean, at that point, we were more concerned and I can remember these discussions because we trusted the guy and mm. I mean, our experience so to date at that point was that people were lovely and very trustworthy and very friendly and we hadn't any experience because there weren't any other expats about about being ripped off or somebody taking your land after you signed it over to them. Our biggest concern, and I remember saying this to you, was well, what happens if there's a military coup or something like that and we have to leave the country? That's when you don't sell up in England and you invest only what you can afford to lose. And it would be painful and very sad to have to return, but we could actually do that if it came to it. I've known Sometimes sad For the way it's grown Ranging up And ranging out And trying to change My ways about There's a place in the leaf A place in the bow Found a place For me Just now Just now Just now Turning the wheel as fast as I can Turning the wheel to make me a man There's a man in the moon, a man in the sea Growing strong, there's a man in me Just now, just now, just now No behind and no before to worry anymore Happy then Happy now There's always a way to get happy somehow Friend on the road A friend in the home A better friend now Than I've ever known Just now Just now Just now Red Button. Conversation set free.
what conclusions have you come to about that side of Indonesian culture when it comes to doing deals, where there isn't this deferred gratification, which people in Britain are probably brought up to, to think of, that just you just think a little bit beyond, do I do the naughty now, or do I stick with this? Yeah. What's your feeling about well, that, think broadly? The lasting impression that one gets now at the end of it all, as it were, is that we were very naive to start off with, and that, you know, would we do it again? Sure, would we advise anybody to do what we did? Probably not, actually, because we went through a lot of pain and, and things along the way, and because we were the sort of people that we are, and we are very strong together, and we ride out the bad times, and we did have to ride out some bad times in the whole thing. You know, you don't, it's a catch-22 situation in a way, because you don't know what you're doing until you get there, and you can't get there until you know what you're doing. Mm. So and we had to sort of somehow find a way through this this maze of bureaucracy and trusting people, who you trust, who you don't trust, and we somehow managed to to negotiate that. I, I would say also, which is quite important, is, and I don't think you can overemphasize this, Phil, is that we always had the support of the village behind us, and the village headman yeah. and the people in the village, even to the point, um, and I'm not giving much away, but obviously things did go wrong with Oni later in life. He wasn't from the village. He was outside of the village. And I think it all came down to that, that the village, because the village were behind us and could mm. see the benefit of Phil and I living there and building this, mm. what they termed the big white house, they looked after us, probably more so than we ever could have expected. So when things did go wrong... And more than we realised, More than we realised. It wasn't until we had, afterwards that we realised how much they had actually done for us, you know. How much they um, had Because that's the Indonesian way we find is that people, things happen through the back door. You know, nothing is that obvious. You have to look for the, you know, the the, the more obscure, I don't know what's the word. The wheels within wheels. It's exactly, it's, it's subtle. It's, what, who people knew, what contacts exactly. the people within the village had. And, oh, well, I've got a cousin who's in the police yeah. and he'll, he'll come in and um, he'll help you or he knows people that can help you do that. And they do that because of the family connection, which, again, I can't overemphasize how important family is in North Sulawesi. I mean, I think it's in the whole of Indonesia. So the interesting thing there for somebody listening back in Colchester is that whereas all this kind of thing would be dealt with through contracts and then through a whole infrastructure that makes sure that that happens, yeah? Mm. Uh, you had to contend with the fact that you didn't realize that this guy who, who did the dirty on you eventually, if he had been a local boy made good, it might have been a whole different story. The British mind isn't going to think, well, he doesn't even come from here, therefore it's a risk. Oni was not the local boy, and we didn't spot that one. Sure, and absolutely. And the village people didn't like him, that's the point. And they were quite... Um, arrogant. Arrogant, thank you. But they did like us, and this is the point. What I was saying earlier about something would happen to our advantage, and we didn't really know how it had happened until much, much later, very often. Well, how did that piece of paper actually get signed, signed, off. signed off by the right people, by the village head or the head, you know, the district head or whatever? Oh, that was that was me. I went along. You know, and they don't ask for any thanks or any payment for this. It's just that, you know, they got on with it in their quiet Indonesian way and they went to see this guy and they sorted it out and they talked about us, they talked about Oni and in the end, he was blown out. Not by us, by the no. people that lived around us and could see the benefits of of us coming to live there and basically that we got on with it very well, didn't we? Despite having the language difficulties because neither of us could speak any Indonesian at this point really. Keep 
Phil's story is appealing for lots of reasons. First, because I think we as a nation are, at the moment anyway, completely obsessed with the idea of venturing into pastures new, whether you're escaping to the country, escaping to the chateau, place at the sun, or one of the other programs you could watch about changing your lifestyle, changing your location. So we like the idea. But most of us are just armchair travellers. And we watch the people who think, well, they're going to they're gonna succeed or they're going to fail. What's different about Paula and Phil is that there is an added edge of adventure because of where they're going. They're going to a place hardly anybody's ever heard of, let alone could stick a pin in a map and say exactly where it was. There's jeopardy because they're giving up successful careers to take everything halfway around the earth to set up a completely new venture in a field in which, let's be blunt, neither of them have any experience. That's to say, running a lodge. And apart from anything else, there are the huge cultural and language difficulties that they've got to overcome in order to make this thing happen. And they haven't got the luxury of a reality TV crew behind them with producers and researchers and Mr. Fixits running around, getting everything done so they've got the great reveal on the last day of filming. No, they've done it on their own. So it's got lots of ingredients that make you really want to listen to what happened next. Hello? Bill? Can you hear me? Wait, wait. Can you hear me now? Good. Right. Well, it's done. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, uh, I need tickets. Plane tickets. To the UK. Yes. Well, to bring you the MP3 file of this show. 
hand it to you directly. Wivenhoe residence? Okay, great, thanks. Uh, yes. Uh, business class? Great. I love these trips back to the motherland. Now come on, shotgun bright. What makes me envy your life? Faceless, nameless, innocent, blameless, and free. What's that like to be? Button is a guppy production for Cone Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. <laughs> <laughs>